Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, crypto traders around the world. We got a little bit of news and a lot of rant. And I, I'm not going to apologize for the rant because I think it needs to be said, but we'll save that for the tail end. But we have some news, and I think it's important that we cover a lot of this because it's going to directly impact you in some way if you have a wallet or investment of some form. And hopefully you're not staring at it days in and days out, but you probably are. But at the top of the hour, of course, all the main coins, so, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, so on, all of them except for BNB took some dumps, and it's because there's some still some sell-off that's happening. We expect that it'll end at some point, but we don't know when and we don't know why. I do have a theory on why I think some of this is happening now, but we're going to talk about this a little bit in depth as I go through the news. First up, you know, if you've listened to past episodes, you've heard me call this dude Vitalik Buterin, call him an idiot. I don't care how brilliant people fancy him because of his involvement with Ethereum. I'm talking about his behavior. I consider him an idiot. So I want to talk about why I consider him an idiot. He has lofty visions, and he he strikes me as a person who wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't know what the almost cussed. He doesn't know what the heck he's doing in, in the strategic side, the, the business minded side, the investment side. He's a technical person. He's a technical minded person. He's a STEM person. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying that I think that there's, there's a little bit more to it than just the technical. As I speak, somebody who works technical, you've got to have more of the business side, the investor side, financial side, economy you got to think of in totality and i don't think he does that i think he just goes off the technology pieces again i it's not that i don't it's not that i think he doesn't have the best of intentions i just think that there's for whatever reason kind of a flaw in the way that he approaches it so he's come out recently and if you if you know the story he took some shib way back early when shib had the super ultimate inventory and of course you're like what are you talking about has it now Shiv has an alternate inventory, but it's nowhere near what it is, what it was back then. Nowhere close. Back then, it has a crazy amount of inventory. They sent half the tokens to this dude, and he then distributed it over to, he burned some of it and then sent some to what's called crypto relief, which was to um, support people that were trying to get the COVID vaccines out. So apparently, crypto relief sent about $100 million back, which is probably excess funding, and this dude says he's going to deploy these and he's going to try to complement the work with some more uh, COVID science and relief projects around the world. And you're like, okay, that's a great use case. That's a great thing. But if we dig a little bit deeper, the truth is, is that there were a lot of laws in India that were hindering the use of the funds. Now, Buterin had known, had to have known this up front. And so there was this kind of back and forth of, well, why did you send it to them in the first place instead of sending it to the world wide in the first place? And he doesn't have an answer for that. Nobody confronts him on that and hold him accountable for why he didn't do that. And again, people that say hate is going to hate, I'm not criticizing his actions. I'm criticizing his words. Because again, if we talk about what is your intent behind what you got, you got this donation. The, the donation is what it is, right? It's worth way more now than it was back then. But the truth is, if you wanted to make this great thing happen, you could have better done things at a worldwide level up front. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And I don't know why. So I'm just, I'm questioning what's going on there. He also says, don't send him tokens without his consent. 
I agree with this. He can't stop it. They're still going to do it. It doesn't matter. They don't care what he thinks because he's another holder. So if he burns them, it helps the token. If he sells them, it, it harms the token, which is what happened with ID Finance. So I, what I'm saying is I wish he would shut up, to be honest, to just shut up, stop speaking out, stop saying anything in the public because I don't see that he understands how these words and things have a have a harm to the sentiment, the larger sentiment from an investment perspective. It's not that he's doing a good gesture. That's not the point. The point is, is that he's sitting on a pretty significant bag of shib now that he's going to try to allegedly do something worldwide that he should have done up front. And at a point that shib is kind of on the downtrend, that means more sell behavior. That means more harm to the token. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it, it seems like it's not really thought through. This is my opinion on it. And I'm, He's going to do what he's going to do with his wallet. I just don't agree with it personally, is my opinion. Robin Hood, and if you've listened to the show, you know that I don't think very much of Robin Hood for crypto trading, and the reason is because so many others do it better. Robin Hood had a significant loss in 2021 when they reported it, way over what they expected, primarily around their crypto, because ultimately the crypto activity has gone down. And before people say, well, they need to get shib, it's not about shib. Robinhood sucks as a crypto platform. I'll say it 10 times to Sunday. They suck. It's not good for crypto. I don't even like Weeble. And even Weeble is better than what Robinhood's doing as far as cryptocurrency goes. And then you got Crypto.com, which I don't think they're that good, but they're better than Robinhood. You got Coinbase. They're better than Robinhood. Like I could go on and on and on with all these tools that are significantly better than anything Robinhood does. And yet there's still this rush to go to. Yeah, let's go to Robinhood. Robinhood, we want Shiba Robinhood. And there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it, but yet it still happens. It still keeps happening. I don't know why. And this is an effect that we're now seeing that, okay, their their activity, their velocity, their volume, their use is going down. I like to hear that. I don't want people who are on it to be harmed. I want the people who are on it to recognize that are better, there are better platforms out there for crypto. Use your Robinhood for your stocks. If you want to... Get into crypto, cash it out from the stocks. Robinhood does a great job on stocks. I have no criticism on it for stocks. Cash it out, use that money, buy into a Coinbase or Webull or Crypto.com or even Binance US as garbage as it is. But if you're really concerned for whatever reason about the, the clean interplay between stock and crypto, Webull does that. If your concern is availability as a United States citizen, let's say, Coinbase is there for you. Like, there's no compelling reason to trade on Robinhood. That's my point, and that's what we're seeing in the recent behavior. Will it recover? I don't know. I don't think it will, but who knows? And we're seeing an increase in the number of celebrities that are getting sued about crypto, which is a good thing. I love it. I love seeing it. I think it's amazing. I think it's awesome. We needed to see it. We're talking people like Kim Kardashian. We're talking people like Floyd Mayweather, all the way to the lower tier celebrities that haven't been in the spotlight that much uh quentin tarantino he's been threatened like all these are getting threatened with this and the reason is because they're they're shilling and i've talked about shills they're shilling these tokens that eventually fail floyd mayweather he got in with the ethereum max just like kim kardashian did and because it's floyd mayweather there's all this you know jump of the price and then it tanks and of course you've got people like uh paul pierce i don't follow nba but paul pierce he's on the Apparently, he's a basketball player. Don't know anything about him. And so now you got these big, big time uh, investors who are going, taking it to court, saying, no, this is, we lost money because of this shilling. 
and I want to be clear, it's not about it's not about the specific celeb. It has nothing to do with their gender, race, creed, or color. This is about shilling, the, 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 the art of shilling, the going after people and paying them to shill your token, which I don't like, and I want it to stop, and this is why I want it to stop, and I'm hopeful that the outcome of these lawsuits is that we see a decline in shilling, that it'll make these token creators nervous to do the shilling. Like if you're going after a celebrity, you're not going to pay them, but the celebrity sees that your project is good and they believe in it, and as a result, they want to give you an endorsement because they're an investor and there's no compensation. I have no problem with that. Where I have a problem, we just, there was somebody on Reddit that was asking the question. And I think it was Para Inu because Para Inu, and I'll get to that in a second, Para Inu has that beautiful table on their site that tells you all their expenses. And they called out the expense on January 10th, which correlated with the AMAO Jake gain. And I think it was like $15,000. So they paid this dude $15,000 to go on there and ask and answer questions. That's the kind of thing that should stop. We should not be allowing that. Jake should not be allowed to take money for hosting an AMA because he's essentially a YouTube shiller. He shills specific projects. It would be fine if it's like we're paying news outlet, ABC News, right, or some other center that has no direct interest in cryptocurrency per se or is not shilling any single token or they're talking about generic topics around crypto. I'm fine with that. And then I don't think that that compensation should be part of it. Or if it is, I think that the host should be required to disclose it at the front of the show. I was paid $15,000 to host this for them. Something along those lines, because you got to think about it as an investor, that's your money that went into this. Some people will say, well, that's the only way they can get popularity. I disagree. I think they could be more popular on their own merits if they knew to work hard on the token project so that they didn't need to rely on those shillers as many tokens have done. Now, let me circle back to Para, now called Para, used to be called Para Emu. I, I gave a brief update about Para Emu. They did a migration. They rushed a migration, three days over spam. And let me summarize what happened. We don't know the reasons specifically why, but ultimately it's a new contract. They essentially drained the liquidity without, I, I, in my opinion, without fair warning. So a lot of people woke up and they saw that their wallet value was nothing. So there's a lot of outrage on social media, rightfully so, of people calling it a rug pull, calling it a honeypot, saying they were scammed. And many people drew a direct parallel to two other projects, Raja Inu, which I never followed, but it turned out to be a rug pull, and Suzuki Inu, which of course was a rug pull because the same thing happened. All of a sudden they, op they open up the wallet and the liquidity's drained. I want to be clear here. I'm not accusing them of being a rug pull. I know they're not a rug pull. I know they're not scammers. My criticism is around the way they handled it and the short time frame with which they did it, which I thought was poorly planned. And the fact that they do this, and there's other parts I'll talk about, but they do this under questionable auspices. If they were, if I were to ask them, but they don't respond to me, they'll say, on the AMA, deep, deep, deep. And they don't seem to understand, like many tokens don't understand, that you need to have it documented on your freaking site. Clearly, with an FAQ, what's happening? Why is it happening? What are we going to do? What do I need to know? And then you repeatedly distribute this. And you say, we're going to take a week or two weeks or some sufficiently lengthy span of time to consistently broadcast this message. Ideally, you do press releases, which you can pay for. I talked about that on an old episode. 
you contact these news outlets and you say, we're doing a press release. We're about to do migration. We need to get the word out. So let's do the press. But that didn't happen. They trusted Telegram and Twitter, but many of these people are banned on Telegram because their admins are triggers. And so they didn't get the message there. And then with Twitter, because of the time zone differences, many people didn't get the message there or they got it. And their flyer has in a big box, send your tokens here, send your tokens here. You got till 10 o'clock a.m. With no real understanding about how to position your visual messaging so where it's not creating an unfounded urgency. So that well, there was one girl on the call who said, you know, they, they called me out of panic. And I said, wrong token, because their flyer was creating an unfounded urgency. It didn't need to do that. And the only reason it need, they thought they needed to do it is because you did a three-day span when you didn't need to do three days and you could have done it longer because you knew it was a problem. Speaking of, when I go back in time, I covered para Emu way back when it was spiking and jumping. And I said, this is pretty significant jumps for this type of a token. And I saw strong fundamentals in the contract. I still do. But I did say that I think the Emu might hold them back because they're, the loss of perception around Inu, it's substantial now. We're seeing that there's less confidence in Inu tokens or they're perceived as a scam. This dude, I believe his name is Lee, rest tenebris on, Telegram, on Twitter. This dude, he goes on he goes on some show and he's talking about, yeah, we thought about not doing the Inu, but we said we want to try to prove that we can make an Inu work. So we're just going to keep it and we're going to show that it works. So right there, you, you're just tone deaf. You're completely tone deaf and you're ignoring the common sentiment that's obvious that we're seeing a decline in the confidence from an investor sentiment perspective in EMU-based tokens. So then they rebranded and now it's Para, just Para. The same logo, essentially, but it's just Para, no EMU. So they basically took and changed it instead of up front making the right decision and thinking it through and saying maybe we should just not have the EMU and just call it paratoken or something else, like up front, which would have negated that whole stymieing. Two, you're building a new contract, and that's fine, but when you look at the specs of the new contract, these are things you question, why wasn't this thought of up front? And then they do this whole chaotic move, and people are absolutely panicked, and people are being, you know, nobody was left behind. You got the airdrop. That's not the point. I'm not focusing on the action. I'm focusing on the, the precursor to this action and the poor planning, and the rushing, and the scattering around, and not thinking things through. There's a pattern forming with the para Inu now Para group, where it seems like they're just kind of going through the motions, and they're not properly planning. That's my concern, not for me individually, but from an investor sentiment perspective. We're a month out from the launch, essentially, and a month out from the launch, all of a sudden, it's like... <laughs> We're going to go do a new contract and we've got three days to do it. You got, you got to send it, go send it now. And then, okay. It just, it screams lack of prep, lack of planning. It screams like you guys are rookies. And I'm sure you are rookies to the space, but you've been in crypto before. I think he even said he's been scammed before. So you got to understand, you got to understand that how this resonates to your investor pool at large. It resonates that you're trying to scam them. I know you're not. But you got to understand that's how it perceives to the larger population outside of the crypto bubble. So you can do all the reassurances you want. And to a second note, you need to get your Telegram admins back in line, soldiers, and get them in line and tell them to stop getting triggered, stop banning people that ask quality questions that are hard questions, but they're quality questions that are fair questions and fair criticism. Tell them to stop banning people if I were you. 
I tell them to go in there right now and clear your ban list immediately, unless if it was true spam, right? But if it's somebody that was just asking fair questions or just had criticism or something else, you should be telling them to remove everybody from that ban list because you're harming your investor sentiment. And the more you harm your investor sentiment, the hard it's going to be for you to sustain growth. Number two, somehow you got to get some planning. I don't know if you like project managers. I don't know if you like business analysts. I don't know if you like service owner type people, IT type people. What do you lack? I don't know. You're lacking something in the planning and the preparation and the strategy side. That's going to harm investor sentiment because it comes across that you don't know what the, almost cussed, you don't know what the heck you're doing. So I'd like to see those fixed because I am an investor and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not scammers, but you strike me as you don't know what the heck you're doing. And that's got to be resolved somehow, some way. Here's the way we start. Tell your telegram people, clear that ban list, clear it out. And you will not ban anybody who asks a question or who shares fair criticism. And if you do that, you're off the team. Do that as a good faith and show that you want the smoke. That's all I got to say on that one. And that's all I got to say on the news in general. I've got another update here about crypto.com because I want to circle back on something that happened from a so-called expert. But before I do that, today's episode, I figured I'm going to do a synopsis on Floki. And the reason this came to attention is because what I think a lot of tokens fail to do is learn from the failed lessons of Floki when it failed the initial time. So here's what, here's what I want you to think about with this whole process and tokens in general. If you weren't aware, Floki Ingu, as it was at the time, is actually a victim of two separate rug pulls. And many don't know this, but I want to talk through the timeline because, again, many tokens fail to learn from the mistakes of the past. In June, of course, this is around June, I think it was May, you know, Elon starts getting into this whole tweeting about crypto kind of a little bit more than he was. But in June, he sends a tweet and he's talking about a new dog he bought, which is a Shiba Inu, hint, hint, and he's going to name it Floki. When this happens, all these tokens that are originated from like Japan and China, they start spinning up all these dog coins. This is what starts the rise of all the coins that we now see all over the place that are trying to reform because they did it. You know, you're talking like ID. Raja and all these other ones are originating from that whole fiasco back then is it, it we can trace it directly back to this unfortunate tweet from Elon Musk that he he's toned down since but he still will every now and then come around like baby doge he did it again baby doge de- 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 garbage so he does this tweet and Floki is it shows up immediately people do a scan about the contract to try to figure out what the heck's going on and there's all sorts of red flags. The ownership's not renounced. That's not a problem in of itself. I talked about that. But they also saw that only the owner could sell. You can buy it, but only the owner can sell. Right there, that means scam. Because if, if you can't sell, it's basically a honeypot. That's essentially what it is. Now, I want to be clear. This was identified literally the day that this token starts showing up. Because people had started saying, okay, that's kind of weird. Is that a random nowhere? Turns out, after this happens, a bunch of people start jumping in and buying it. It starts spiking and spiking because, again, everybody keeps reacting to freaking Elon's tweets over and over again. And they're creating this army, this this cult-like army. And there's a lot of FOMO because the price is jumping. It was unreasonable levels of jump. 
what they did then is they saw all sorts of issues in the sell and the buys as we expected. We saw the developer started taxing holders to, and but they would redirect the funds to their own wallet, right? So now they were holding the funds, holding the funds and holding the funds, creating a sort of artificial inflation. So think of it as, as people are holding the tokens, right? And the volume is what creates price movement. But as you hold, do the hold of the tokens, you're taking them out of circulating supply, but it's artificial because you're sending it to the developer. So think of it that way. It's kind of an artificial, I don't want to say artificial pump because that's not fair. It's, it's artificial deflation in a sense. So once we do this and <clears throat> all of a sudden the, the project team says, okay, we got to get clean on this. We got to figure out what it is. Apparently it's a rogue developer and they announced that, okay, a rogue developer did this and we were trying to go straight. Let's fix this and do this. So they build up a new contract. This is on Ethereum V2. And they said, okay, migrate your tokens over here. And after you migrate your tokens over here, we're going to do, uh, we're going to do it right. We're going to do a new contract. Everything's clean. We're a whole new team. So people send their contract, send their tokens over here. We're talking a very vociferous, very loyal following with these folks, the Floki Vikings, as they call themselves. They send the tokens over there. As apparently, somebody inside the project team took and drained the liquidity pool now. So the first time, it's we're intercepting tax transactions and we're stashing them. So we're basically benefiting from the taxes as an individual rather than a project. The second, they drain the liquidity and then they turn the, the Ethereum over to the Tornado Cash tool, which is basically laundering it out so you can't tell what's going on there and they drain it completely. When it turns, when when we go back in time, we see that at the time there was somebody that had contracted externally to build out the contract and support the contract. And this third party is the one who took the fund. So it wasn't even the Floki team. They trusted somebody else and that somebody else took them for a ride. So then the second one, which was a rug pull, it was a rug pull. It's like there, they just made a bad decision. They picked the wrong outsourcing. The reason this came up and why I was thinking about it using a third-party developer to build a thing and gave them access to the liquidity pool or gave them access to anybody's funds. Satama, Cytomask, allegedly used a third-party to build their tool. Matrix likely used a third-party to build their tool. And so we see a pattern of you're outsourcing this stuff and there's no oversight. We're not checking and managing the work that these people are doing. And as a result, this is what happens and we see this failure, essentially a failure. So now the main person in Floki, after this has happened a second time. So the first time you had a bad developer and it wasn't the team that cheated them. It was just one rogue developer went rogue. Second, they outsource it because they no longer have the developer and the outsource takes it, takes the liquidity. So now one of the main dudes comes back and says, you know what? We're going to fix this. We're going to renounce the ownership after we send them. Nobody will have any control. We're going to lock the liquidity for 420 years. We're going to do an audit, which they hadn't done. We're going to do all these things to try to gain your trust. This then became what we now know of as V3. Now, here's the funny part of this. They, they released this, and it's got reflections. It's got all the common mechanics. This is around January, uh, July, and they have all these great things, all these mechanics. You will go back to my episode a little while ago, and I told you that Floki had changed it again, and now they changed the mechanics where you don't get the reflections, and the burn's been changed, and they changed it again. If they had renounced the ownership, they could not have done this. So what they did is they migrated it basically to a V4 contract in order to enforce that. So 
there wasn't really a single V3 pass through and then we're done. They basically passed the V3 and then silently passed the V4 under the hood so that they could lock everything down. My point in all this is this, the Floki project in total has been an absolute nightmare from preparing and strategy, not knowing what the heck you're doing, lack of oversight, just no accountability whatsoever. It's not even about going to a certic audit or dessert. There has to be a point where you are on your own saying, we got to oversee this and make sure that it's successful. And I don't think that's been there. That's the reason I'm so adamant against what Para Inu was doing. That's why I'm so adamant against what Satama has been doing. That's why I'm so adamant about what SHIB's been doing. Because we, and we learn, we should learn from what happened with Floki Inu and Keanu Inu, and we're not. With ID, when they sent the haft over there to Vitalik like, like idiots, right? It tanked the value of the token. It recovered a little bit, but nowhere close to what it was at its peak. And they were basically just copying what SHIB did, which was a stupid thing to do. We're just repeating stupid things and we're not doing the opposite of the stupid. We're doing, we're copying the stupid and applying it to our own new token. And that's harming investors because now everybody perceives every token as a rug pull. So I wanted to summarize that because I thought first it was good to document it. So we have it for all perpetuity, but also to try to, once again, implore these tokens to stop making preventable mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. I have no problem with mistakes. I have a problem with preventable mistakes, mistakes where we should be learning from the mistakes of the past. If we're not willing to do that, I don't know when we're going to be successful and we're just going to steer money back to the main tokens that are out there, your Bitcoins and Ethereums of the world. And that's not fair to the altcoins that really should be succeeding and they can't succeed because ultimately they're being manipulated by people who don't know what the, sorry, I almost cussed, don't know what the heck they're doing. I want to take a moment here to talk about this whole business with crypto.com and the breach. And there are so-called experts who I say that expert is another way to refer to X pertinent. However, there are so-called experts coming out and saying, well, maybe two factor authentication isn't really secure. Let me just assure you of a couple things. I have a degree in computer information systems and ultimately I've been exposed to two factor authentication when it first became a thing all the way to current day. There's nothing wrong with two-factor authentication. There's nothing wrong with multi-factor authentication. I do believe that society has gotten to the point where we should be smarter about how we authenticate people. This is true. However, at the end of the day, you always have to come back to a password at some layer. So when I say layer, I did an update on Gentleman's World, other podcasts that we have, and I was talking about security and authentication and the fact that we should be using what's called magic links. And a magic link is nothing more than they'll email you a function that's automatically authenticated to come back into the service with the assumption being that you have access to your email and only you, of course, that's putting the security onus on you now, as opposed to the service, because if you took that email and you forwarded it to somebody else, now you're, you know, you're going to be breached, right? So they're assuming if you think about security in, in layers, there's the layer of the service, whatever service you're going, your bank, your crypto service online, you know, whatever it is, t Twitter, doesn't matter. That service has some security model in front of it. Then there's your email because your email is involved at some point, whether it's through validation or through authentication code or through magic URL or whatever it is. Then there's you, which is kind of the last point of defense. If we think of it in layers, you are the last point of defense. Your, your actions or inactions will govern your security. And there are certain assumptions that these services have to make about your competency around security. So what happens when these services spin up password authentication? What did that mean? 
you create a username or your email address and a password pair. And whenever you come back in, you need to enter this pair. Well, you have a lot of services, I'm sure. So then they say spin up a password manager, you know, LastPass or any of the other ones, get pass. And you do that. Okay, cool. So you got all these passwords. Well, those vaults will require you to create a secure password of itself. So now you got another layer to think about because if you lose that password, you lose access to all your services. If you don't use the password manager because you reuse the same password, now you've exposed yourself to risk because now your password could easily be guessed and then they get access to the world. So then what the services started thinking is, well, we need another factor because your passwords, there's no way we can constrain passwords. So they started implementing complexity requirements. You got to have these special characters, got to be this length, but there's no standard. There are best practices, should be minimum of eight, ideally minimum of 12, should have a complex set of special characters. There's all these best practices that came out as recommendations. Fast forward and we see that that still isn't working. And it's not working because they're not paying attention to the last point of defense, which is you. Because you could forget the password because it's no longer easy for you to remember or something else could happen. Okay, so then now they fast forward and say, okay, let's change the password best practice. Let's implement things that say create a nonsense phrase, something that includes words that you'll easily recognize in an order that you know, but it's a nonsense phrase that's hard to guess. And these are actually the hardest to crack. They're hardest to hack. They're hardest to breach. The problem is very few services support that. Very few. Everybody else doesn't, and it's because they don't support spaces in the password or they don't support like consistent characters. Like they don't want, it has to be a letter and then a number. and da, 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 da. So now they're stopping you from using the best possible password. So since there was never widespread adoption of this, two-factor authentication comes in to try to fill that gap with the thought being that we have now something that you know and something that you have, right? And between these two, you have to have both and nobody would have access to both but you. So once again, we're back at the single point of defense, which is you. The problem is initially when they implemented this business, it was all about text messages. If you don't know text messages, the standard is called SMS, short message, right? The short message protocol was never built with the type of security that we take for granted today. Encryption is across the web, predominantly across the web, pretty much because the browsers forced it. SMS was never built with that security. It was never built with encryption. It was never built with those standards. There are services that can do it, but they're not treated as text, you know, cell phones. So many services block them because they're looking for an actual cell phone carrier. So you can't use the services that would actually protect you. You're forced to use this unsecure method to send a text code. Many of the people who got breached in two-factor, I'm not talking crypto.com, I'm talking in the past, were using the text-based two-factor because they were forced to by their service provider. What happens is anybody can spoof your cell phone number. Anybody can get access to your text messages. Let's be clear here. You can search this yourself. Anybody can get access to your text messages. Text messages is the worst conduit for sending secure information, and yet so many businesses leapt on the bandwagon because everybody's got a cell phone, deep, deep, deep. And now here we are with numerous breaches. In comes the Google Authenticator, Authy, LastPass Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator, et cetera, to basically generate those codes for us. We always had it in the form of RSA, which was used on the business side, but we never had consumer variants until now. So now we have these consumer tools that can generate codes. Not every service uses it, number one. Number two, the implementation is very specific in how you do it. I'm talking the service, your bank or whatever, 
has to implement it very specifically in order to make sure it's as secure as it can be. Some of you who work from home and you have a some device that you're required to enter a code from into some sort of a tool, you know, Pulse Secure or Cisco or something else to log into the VPN. And it's usually a six digit code and certain of these tools will allow you the privilege, like Duo is one, will allow you the privilege of you enter your password and then you enter the six digits and that's all in the password field. So what it's basically doing is it's saying that this six digit code is a part of your password, but it's constantly changing. That means that you're only, you're basically only password based, but it's always dynamically shifting, which makes it to where you can't really guess it because it's always a new number that can't be guessed. Here's the downside of this two-factor authentication in this form, as well as when you manually enter it. That number, the one-time use password, that number is generated using a very fancy combination of information that's on their side of the service. So they have some number, some sequence, some value, some something that is unique to them. And that's their identifier. Then they pair that identifier with the time, so the current time of your device, and they generate this code. Now, the problem is, is that if you knew how to get access to that ID, which isn't easy to be fair, but it is possible because you it, think about it. When you get set up to work from home, the first thing they tell you to do is to set up your dual factor, set up your duo, set up your RSA, whatever, and you're usually having to go to some URL or download some app or do something to go out and then you enter some credentials and that's what pulls down that ID. The problem is, is that because you can do that, it means you could theoretically intercept that ID depending on what it is. Now, many services have blamed like people's home wireless or whatever, that, that's crap, I'm sorry. What's really happening is, is that because of these services and the way they're implemented, where you're doing it that way, it's too easy to get in there because you still have a password in the play. So the password is transparent to you, but it's not transparent to a hacker. If they want to get there, they're going to get there. So in summary, this crypto.com thing, if it truly was a breach of the two-factor, it's not the two-factor that's the problem. It's the way they implemented it that was the problem because they kind of half-assed it, assuming that two-factor by itself was good enough. Now, in order to wrap this up, I want to just explain what ideally should happen and the best that I've seen in enforcing this to where you have strong dual factor without the risk of a breach. Your, ultimately, your text messages can be hacked. They can be breached. They can be stolen. They can be whatever. The same is true of your cell phone. Your cell phone number, the actual calls can be misrouted. They can be intercepted. All sorts of things that happen. They don't commonly happen because there's no reason to attack you but it could happen. It's actually very easy. All you do is get a duplicate SIM card that is provisioned with your information. And if they plug it to their device, boom, they have access to everything you have access to as far as phone calls and text messages and MMS. So because of the risk of that happening, your real risk vector is truly the cell phone. It is the cell phone itself. Taking it out of the equation mitigates the risk because now you're dealing with something that cannot be duplicated that easy. And I know this will be controversial, but the best answer has always been, and certain services do it and certain services don't. The best answer has always been either a home, like a landline, or you're using a digital service like Google Voice or something else to route the call or the text message to your device. Why does that make sense? Because those front-end services, let's talk about the Google Voice as an example. In Google Voice, it does support a password. 
it does support dual factor, but the way their dual factor works is it comes to a device that you, a physical device that you own, which means that they'd have to know your Google account. They're not going to, if you're on crypto.com and you're using a completely different password login, they're not going to know what your Google account is. So when they try to go in there, it's going to send a prompt to your device saying, hey, somebody's trying to log in. It tells you exactly where they're coming from. And you see, hey, that's not my city. And you know that somebody's trying to breach your account. Nobody uses that, but that's what they should. Microsoft does the same thing with Microsoft Authenticator. It sends you a message when somebody to your device based on your actual login, Google or Microsoft login, to say somebody's trying to log in. It doesn't care if it's a cell phone, tablet, doesn't care about your cell phone number, doesn't care about your email address. It cares about you are logged into a certain device. That's 10 times harder for a baddie to do is to get into your Google account or your Microsoft account because of all the layers they put in place to protect you. In summary, that's a lot of technical to simply say, if you've never used, I'm sure a lot of you use Gmail because I see the subscriptions come in. In Gmail, you know that it sends you a prompt when you log into Google, if you've enabled it, it'll send you a prompt to your Android device if you have it. And I think they started rolling this out to iOS, but I know for a fact on Android, when you log into your Android device, It'll send you a prompt and anytime somebody tries to log in and every time you add your Google account to another device, it'll send you another prompt to all your devices so that you know somebody's trying to get into your account. But also, it's harder for them to get in because they can't get past that prompt. There's no code they can hack. There's no password they can breach. There's nothing they can deal with. So that's number one is if they're able to implement that type of integration, which they could, it's Microsoft offers it to businesses that want to do it. Many don't do it because of the cost. But if they were able to do that, that would be way more secure than the code base that we're forced to do from all these services. Number two, and I've only seen a couple do this. I've seen Cisco do it. I've seen Google offers it as well if you want to do it there. And then my phone provider, uh, one of my phone providers does it. What this works, the way this works is beautiful because it doesn't even care if you have a physical device or not. You hit the deal, go ahead and log in, and it calls you. And after it calls you, it says, if you were expecting to get this call, press this. If you were not expecting to get it, press this, and then we'll know that somebody's trying to breach your account. You don't have to enter any passwords. You don't have to acknowledge anything. You're just pressing one button saying, yes, that's who it is. But because it's a call, you can get it to your landline. You can get it to your Google Voice. You can get it to your tablet, phone, anything. It doesn't matter. You just need to be able to receive that phone call to acknowledge that it's truly you. They're not going to know your phone number. And it's going to be hard for them to find it because if they can't find your name, they can't use white pages and not everybody's phone numbers in the white pages. So it's much more secure, again, than entering codes and all that other stuff. And it's not tethered to your device, which your device, as I said, could be breached, could be used to trace you back. Now, when we talk about the SIM card part, the rise of cell phones and the heavy reliance on cell phones has created more security issues than they have solved. This is irrefutable. You as the person who has the account, they're, they're, pu they're increasingly putting the onus on you because they're assuming a lot about you. What I'm saying is there's multiple layers. Everybody has some piece of it, but at the point, two-factor authentication is not the real root of the cause. The way they're implementing two-factor is the root of the problem. What they should be doing is getting away from reliance on the six-digit code as the default authentication method. Like To me, that should be the fallback. If I have no other option, then fall back to that one. But ideally, it's one of the two I described where you get the alert. If you're on Android or Microsoft, you just get the alert and it comes because it knows your account and the hacker would not. Or 
it goes to a phone call, which doesn't care what device you're spinning it to. And then you can spin it to a secure phone that doesn't care about what device it's ringing on and just acknowledge it that way. And then you're notified if somebody tries to breach your account in advance. Because a lot of the problem with the six digits, you're not notified that somebody tried to breach your account. They might send you an email saying, hey, this person just logged in. But do you white noise it? Do you? A lot of people I know that, I'm listen, that are listening to this right now do not check their email religiously like I think you should. Hint, hint. So to me, it's it's there, but it's the stopgap is too late. They've already breached the account. Whereas I'd rather see that we get in front of it and use better authentication methods to secure people's accounts. So I just want to summarize that I don't believe in this nonsense that it's two-factor that's the problem. I think the way they're implementing it is flawed and always has been, and no service outside of Google and Microsoft seems to be willing to fix that. And you know what? To give credit, Telegram has it too. Telegram has it where if you install Telegram on one, or even if you don't install it, if you're running Telegram on device A and you try to log in on device B, device A gets a prompt saying, do you want to allow that one in? So as insecure as that is, even they're able to do the correct way to authenticate where it's as secure as you can possibly get it, as opposed to relying on codes and passwords and all this other nonsense that can easily be breached. So if you are in crypto.com, you've known that I am not a fan of crypto.com because they have a mobile only strategy. And that's part of the problem because you focus on mobile development. You focus on the assumption. Everybody's got a phone deep, deep, deep. And then of course you're not building around the risks of using that phone. All of that played a factor in what happened. And hopefully they learn from it and start building an actual web interface. And they use the real authentication that I was describing that's way more secure. I think we're years away from them adopting that, in my personal opinion. And we're going a little bit long, and that's okay, because there was a lot to talk about in today's episode. But, you know, I'll wrap up with a couple of follow-on points about Satama, number one. There have been reports that the there's progress being made on the application for Cytomask. And as I said, I will not recommend it. I still won't recommend it, because there, unfortunately, a lot of these missteps were preventable. And it, it screams again, a lack of prep and a lack of awareness about what was going to happen when it went south. And on YouTube, at least, I published kind of these comments about here's what's happening here. Here's what's going on there. And here's what I think we need to fix. And here's what I think we need to re revert, revert back to. It's obvious what got us to this point. What got us to this point is it's a rushed product, number one. They're not able to figure out dates very well, number two. They're apparently... No evidence, but they're apparently outsourcing some of the work, number three. And then communication sucks because they're what they call an AMA is not an AMA and their communication sucks and they're not transparent about the what's going wrong, who's on the hook, who's screwing up. They're not doing any of this. All of these harm investor sentiment. If you heard me on past episodes, I'm big on investor sentiment harm. It's not about the tool. It's not about, we see progress, you got to think about it. And if you're not in IT, it's hard to resonate, but you got to think about how tools get built. Could you imagine if Google, let's say Google spins up another tool, they've killed more tools than they've created. But regardless, if they created a tool and they released it out there and said, Hey, try this new, you know, Google, whatever. And you can't, you, you run it and you can't log in. You'd be like, what are you, you're Google. Are you serious? Because you would not, you would hold them accountable. You would say, no, this is not acceptable. But for whatever reason, so Tom is getting a free pass from the cult and they shouldn't. I apply that same logic to every one of these tokens. When I see that there are preventable mistakes, I'm talking preventable mistakes, things that you, there's something we should have prevented here. I expect you to, to own that, take it on the chin. 
and say, we screwed up or I screwed up as the boss. I screwed up. I got it wrong. I did this wrong. Or this person over here screwed it up. He's out of here. Why? Because that's what you do in a business. You've got to hold it accountable and you shouldn't be holding to dates. I know there's this urgency and chomping at the bit. You created that because you initially put out advertisements promising something you couldn't deliver. The advertisements for Cytomask were months before the November failed Vegas event. So they already knew they planned to do it and they were probably doing mock-ups and wireframes and everything else, but you could not have conformed to a date. But if you watch, and this is funny because one of the things that was spreading around social media was, and I think it was a quote from Russ himself, was that they were going to do this event kind of like you know Tim Cook slash Steve Jobs with their keynotes and it was going to be very professional and we're going to present this thing and da 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 Well, if you know their events, if you've watched any of the Apple events, go and watch them right now. Almost every single one of them says that the product is coming soon. There's very few where they say it's available now. Why? Because they don't know it's available now and they know it's coming in the future and they're trying to get ahead of it. That's number one. So when you do this event, any event, and you promise a thing and you don't deliver, investor sentiment's harmed. When I go to Para Inu, and I see that you you say this is what we're going to do and we're going to make the emu work. We're going to make it work. We can prove that it's going to work. And you completely ignore all evidence to the contrary that it's not going to work. And then you rush a thing out and it has great start momentum, but it tapers off and then you can't sustain it. And then you want to get on exchanges and you realize, oh, crap, our contract isn't going to work. And then now a month after launch-ish, then you have to prioritize doing a migration. Like I've never seen, I've seen tokens where it's been this fast, Floki took it it was about a month after it launched when it had to do a new migration on a thing but it's very unusual to have to do a migration this soon after launch and then you think about all the tokens that never needed to do a migration at all so why is it that all of a sudden we get these tokens where you have to do a migration because you just screw up and didn't plan it up front i'm talking when it's a brand new fresh scratch launch it doesn't happen often and so i always try to figure out well why is that consistently happening and my feedback is always around the planning, the prep, the sentiment, and how do you avoid harming the investor's sentiment? How do you avoid getting it to the point where the investors just don't trust you? It means that there has to be more time dedicated before you launch a thing to make sure all ducks are in a row, everything's checked off, everything's clean, everything's smooth before you launch it. I would argue, and they may do a migration at some point, but I doubt it. But I would argue that like crypto to card is one of the smoothest I've seen in terms of their launch and the way that they did it. And I didn't know why that, I didn't know why that became a thing, but it is what it is. So I'm just saying for me, personal opinion, this is how that works from my perspective. If we are, if we are to move forward as a society, crypto industry, I think we're going to need to get better at what we do and how we do it. That's my personal opinion on this. I want to see tokens do better. And that's why I try to hold them accountable by asking these questions. But I've always said, any token, you're all open invite. If you want the smoke to help me understand why what I'm asking is unsustainable or un, uh, not practical, I'd love to hear it. And we could talk it out because I know that it can be done. I know in technology you can do these things. What is driving your urgency to just make those mistakes? What is driving this rush to an outcome? Why are we not taking the time to really plan it and do it correctly up front so that we can make our investor pool stronger? Because it would seem to me that's the way that we're going to get the strong money. And we should all want the strong money. If I'm missing something, I want the smoke. Please bring it and I'll have you on the show and we can talk it out at any point that you like.
That's all I got for you today, folks. I will check back in with you tomorrow with some more updates. On the weekend, I'm going to be doing some boxing updates, so feel free to check out For the Love of Boxing. Again, our site is CryptoTalkRadio.net to see all our various podcasts. does seem like people are getting on the YouTube snippets, so they seem to be enjoying that. So hopefully we get more subscribers from that conduit as well that enjoy the content that we're putting out. Please do share and subscribe to the podcast in whatever form you choose. We are still on every major platform, and we appreciate each and every one of you. 